What's up, guys, and welcome back to the Megatherium Club podcast, where three nerdy guys talk about fascinating creatures throughout deep time and present. Uh, in the last episode, we gave you the background to the inspiration for this podcast. Uh, we discussed the original Megatherium Club in the late 1800s, as well as some of the original big names that made it up. Um, today, we want to talk about avocados. Uh, wait, hang on. Do you guys like guacamole? <laughs> I think you just blew the punchline there. <laughs> no, I'm asking you. Do you do you like guacamole? Oh, okay. Uh, I I like guacamole. Do you? Uh, on the record. Okay. I like guacamole. Okay, I'm gonna go on the record and say I don't like guacamole. Well, all right. Well, I I do like guacamole, and all right, shocker. That's not actually the main topic to this, but because of the research I was doing for this podcast, it inspired me to make guacamole with you know avocados. But I'll I'll, I'll come back to that later. Uh, today we do want to talk about the Pleistocene, and we each picked a couple animals from this time period that we found interesting and wanted to share with you guys. And for the record, in the last episode, we talked about. Uh, the, the the mascot for this the megatherium itself and i had mentioned it was from the pliocene era well i was wrong and right because it is from the pliocene and pleistocene but we decided to talk about the pleistocene for this episode uh for the record the pliocene is like the first part of the pleistocene <laughs> uh, i didn't want you to separate them like they were two separate entities like one is just part of the other I thought they were two different epochs. No, the Pliocene is within the Pleistocene, I think. Not for my research. Oh, boy. But maybe we'll uh, we'll get to that. Uh, do you guys want to go around real quick? Uh, I think Spencer has one surprise animal, but uh, Zach, do you want to give a quick... Uh, what, what animals are you going to share with us today? I'm going to talk about mammoths in general, as well as mastodons. Awesome. Well, uh, wait, aren't they the same thing? No, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> They're not even, like, closely related. They're not even in the same family. Ooh, actually, oh. I didn't know that. Um, that was actually new new to me. Yeah. Um, Research cool. Well, I mammoths. can't wait to learn about them. Um, Your elephants. I'm going to... Oh, Yeah. Elephantomorphas. I am going to talk about the giant beaver, Castoroides, and the giant bison, bison latifrons. I I was going to let you keep that last one as a secret, but that's, I like it. Now I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, Surprise. (laughs) (laughs) And I chose Glyptodonts and the Megatherium itself, um, our majestic mascot. Before we jump into the cool and fascinating creatures, I'd like to discuss the Pleistocene and paint a picture for you, if you will. Set the mood. The Pleistocene, also known as the Ice Age, or maybe we should refer to it as the Time of Ice Ages, of at least 11 Ice Ages. Wait, but I guess, do you, do you guys like those movies? Because every time I, I like say this word, it just reminds me of those movies. Yeah, isn't there one movie for each like glacial maximum? There's got to be because <laughs> there's too many to remember them at this point. <laughs> yes, I was obsessed with the first one, especially the scene where they like they're going through all the ice tunnels in the side of the glacier, and then they come out at the end, and the saber tooth 
Tiger was like, who's up for round two? That made me laugh so hard when I was a kid. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they came out with one within the last year or two. Like, that's how long they've been producing these. Oh. Um, are they still the same voice actors? Ray Couldn't. Romano. <laughs> Could tell that you takes that. me back. Everybody loves Raymond. Oh, gosh. Oh, yes. That was my childhood. It was that show. That and Friends. And King of Queens. Oh, yep. Come on yep. now. <laughs> but, uh, the, the, so, back on track. The, the Pleistocene is an epoch, or epic, maybe an epic epoch. It's the second smallest geochronologic unit. It is after the Pliocene, from what I found, and before the Holocene. The Holocene is the current epoch, and I guess that can also depend on which uh, scientist you're talking to. But uh, that it, the Holocene corresponds to the one to this one species that's just rapidly growing, proliferating, and having massive impacts on the planet worldwide. Uh, any guesses which species that might be? Squirrels. Yep. No, it's uh, it's humans. Uh, Scrat. It was Scrat. <laughs> Scrat. Scrat had a bigger impact than all of us. Um, but that's that's another episode. Maybe maybe one of us should have done what Scrat is, this saber tooth woodchuck thing. Squirrel. Yeah, that would actually have been a really good idea. Dang. Not maybe we'll do. Lie, I thought he was a fictional creature. No, they existed. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i mean if pretty much anything that you can dream of probably existed that show is scientifically accurate those movies i should say yeah it's true yeah in latin pleistocene means most new or newest referring to the fossil rock layer um, and this means it comes after the pliocene which is the newer layer and before the holocene which means wholly new or entirely new just original when uh, naming when it came to these fossil rock layers. So the Pleistocene was about 2.5 million to 11,650 years ago. Uh, it's marked by the younger, driest cold spell, lead, which leads into the Holocene, and I'll let Zach talk about that and uh, the, uh, the big extinctions around that time zone. And then the, the Pleistocene itself is actually broken into four ages corresponding to rock units, the Galatian, Galatian, the Calibrane, the Chabanian, and Stage Four. The Stage Four is also known as the Late or Upper Pleistocene, and they're still waiting on an official name for it. Probably something that goes along with those other three, and not just Late or Upper. Uh, if you were to look at a map of the continents during this epoch, continents would look pretty similar to today uh, as one would expect during an ice age there was a lot of glaciation which is the growth and expansion of glaciers shocker during these peak glacial periods sea levels would have been almost 400 feet lower than today that, that's just hard to imagine uh, it was all trapped in the ice wasn't it yeah uh, but can you imagine like you know, imagine you're in Florida, and the, the glacier a lot more of Florida. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's huge. Instead of a panhandle, uh, it's like I don't know what's bigger a than slightly a slightly larger panhandle. Yeah, yes, just a, <laughs> a two a panhandle that requires two hands to hold. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the like glacier cast iron skillet handle. <laughs> 
these glaciers held or trapped so much water within their massive frozen areas and as they continue to melt though can you just imagine how much more water is going to enter the oceans um, i don't really want to get on that tangent today it's a bit depressing but uh, we'll focus on the cool stuff for now Further describing the Earth during this time, up to 30% of it is said to have been covered in ice. Uh, as, you, as one can see in various landscapes across the globe today, these glaciers left their mark. Extending all the way across Canada and into the states, a huge chunk of ice came down into the Great Lakes area, or what is known today, and of course, or what is known today, and of course those lakes were left by those glaciers themselves. And these glaciers uh, would have been doing the same thing in Europe and Asia as well. We say ice age, of course, there is ice, but what does that feel like? I mean, I've, I guess I just watched the movie and assume there's just snow all the time. Well, obviously, it would have to be cold to keep all the ice from melting, um, especially at the edge of the glacial sheet. So imagine along the Canadian-U.S. border down into Chicago, northern indiana the average temperature throughout the year would have been around 20 degrees fahrenheit so definitely below freezing most of the year compare that to today in those areas where you really only get that cold maybe two or three months of the year and honestly i it's decreasing at this point zach you're from minnesota uh, how long is it cold up there uh there'll be snow from there, well, there can be snow basically from like end of November if you get a lot of snow till like May. Mm-hmm. Okay. June, like mm-hmm. beginning of June, maybe. So there, there's like a good, there's a solid like six months where there is snow present on the ground. Not that mm-hmm. it is always that cold because it, it takes a long time for it to melt. But yeah, it's just pretty cold still relative to the rest of the country. Yeah. Uh, have either of you guys really noticed any differences in the winters? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Having grown up there, I remember being able to make snow forts like every winter. And then like the last few winters, they're like overall, it's much warmer, much less snow. And it, the temperature is much more volatile with a lot more uh, polar vortexes dipping down into like Minnesota, Wisconsin, where it'll be like negative 50, negative 60 degrees Fahrenheit for a few days at a time, and then just like warming back up to like zero. Yeah, I have to agree with that. I mean, even just when we were in college, uh, I went to college in Iowa and I'm back in Iowa. Me and my friends, we used to go cross country skiing all the time. And now we maybe get to go once, maybe twice a season. And that's when we have to drive up to Minnesota to do that. Uh, it's it's my warm. hometown actually has what is now the second largest cross country ski race in the country, and it used to go from a, a town that is north of our town, like and then into like Main Street. But now uh, they because they don't get enough snow, they have to like make snow for the ski race and spread it over a much smaller area and it's it's a loop now that you do multiple times if you're doing the long race interesting and i know in in indiana thanksgivings were often snowy when i was a kid and 
now you're lucky if you get a white Christmas, at least where I'm from in Indiana, which is northeastern Indiana. So we still get some of that Great Lakes effect, but even even a white Christmas is uncommon, I think. Yeah, it's it's getting warmer. It's changing, or the the climate is changing, whether you believe that we do it or not. You can't deny that it is changing. True. Um, so back back to it. Uh, the Pleistocene was an ice age, uh, or the end of the latest, if you will. You you should hopefully have an idea of what the Earth looked like. Uh, but what about the fauna, um, the animals? There were some crazy creatures living on the planet at this time. While the fauna in both the oceans and on the continental continental masses are considered to be modern-like, there were, there were many more large land mammals called megafauna during this time. As some of you are aware, these included mammoths, mastodons, short-faced bears, saber-toothed cats, woolly rhinos, and more. This is also the time period that the creature our boys in the original club named their group of naturalists after, the megatherium, as well as other giant ground sloths. This wasn't a particularly fascinating time um, in the oceans by comparison but the last of the megalodons would have died out during this epoch and other creatures like stellar sea cow emerged on the scene while tundra and deciduous forests dominated the northern parts of the world with trees and grasses at the mercy of extreme colds and temperature change tropical forests and jungles did exist but only near the equator so imagine the rest of the world is kind of similar but the northern parts of the world are definitely colder than uh, what we see today should also include here that the Pleistocene is evolutionarily important for our humankind. But uh, I, I'm going to let Spencer take it from here. Cool. So uh, I don't have a ton to say about kind of human migration into North America and South America in general, mainly into North America. But I did want to touch on it, and the reason I want to touch on it is this podcast. I mean, I think we've kind of established that we want to focus on kind of the animal side of everything, but you can't mention Pleistocene megafauna and not mention humans uh, and the potential or lack thereof uh, <laughs> of interactions with them. Um, and so uh, I went to, I read this book called The Ecological Indian by Shepard Creck III. And I think that's how you say his last name. And basically, the first chapter talks about the first people in North America. But specifically, he called out this one person, Paul Martin, who was a paleontologist and a geochronologist um, active in the 1960s. And this guy, when asked about the role of humans in kind of the end of the megafauna era, basically... Here's what he said, quote, man and man alone was responsible, unquote, for essentially the extinction of the megafauna. And I'm sure you guys from your research found that pretty much everything that you found said, no, humans were not probably the cause of the extinction of these megafauna. Uh, and so I'm not trying to take too much from Zach talking about it, but the role in humans I want to talk about more. And so basically this Martin guy, he compared to the assault uh, of humans on megafauna. He compared it to the 
to the Nazis during World War II and things like the Blitz in England. Basically a full frontal assault and as soon as, soon as humans arrived on the continent, just bloodlust after these animals. And he, I said he was active during the 1960s. And so for probably most of you, this is when the United States was going through rampant change, specifically uh, with people of color during the civil rights movement, but also the earliest uh, kind of environmentalism mindset was starting to grow during this time, at least more mainstream. And a large part of that was from indigenous people in North America, specifically in the, in the United States, saying, hey, we want to get on board of this one civil rights and also the environmental side of things because we were here a lot longer than Europeans and things were okay. And Paul Martin said he, he was trying to basically discredit every Native American or indigenous person trying to get on the environmental movement in the 1960s by saying, okay, you can't be environmentalist because look at what your ancestors did. They murdered and pillaged and, and caused the mass extinction of all these megafauna. So you, therefore, should not be allowed to be an environmentalist. I, I, the first chapter was basically just saying this Paul Martin dude was the worst human <laughs> for uh, environmental um, and uh, indigenous rights during the 1960s. But he himself was a scientist. So it's interesting to kind of compare the two. Uh, I mean, scientists aren't uh, mutually exclusive from racism, um, especially back then. Uh, back then. So who, anyway, who wrote the um, book? Shepard Creck the Third. It's not a super old book. It's um, I can't remember what the publishing date was, but it's not it's not incredibly old. Does does he agree with? No, 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 no. He doesn't agree with it at all. Okay. So he goes on to to say like to kind of discredit some of this and say, hey, here's the evidence, or really, as I kind of uh, alluded to earlier, the lack thereof mm -hmm. of evidence for humans human role in and. Uh, and the mass extinction events of these megafauna. So the counter argument being... Maybe we should uh, kind of discuss some of the human ancestors that kind of popped up during this time period. Or like what he... went, went away during this time period. Like, so we, we had a bunch of relatives during this time. It wasn't just Homo sapiens ruling the world kind of like it is today. Wait, uh, are you saying there were other hominins? during I the don't... Pleistocene period. Yeah. That we may or may not have warred and uh, reproduced sexually with. Yes. <laughs> I mean, so this is a really interesting topic. And again, I know we're not big on humans here, but during during this time we had... I'm a pretty big human. <laughs> uh, we had Homo nalidae, um, naledi, oh, thank you, uh, Heidelbergensis, Neanderthalensis yep. or Neanderthalensis, depending. There on... you go. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> as soon as I said it, I was like, "I that was wrong." <laughs> Somebody will call you out. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna get so much hate in the comments for that. Well, I am an entomologist, so sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> what? Someone's gonna have to help me with this one too. Floresiensis. Floresiensis. Florensis. Florensis. Ah, yes. And I thought it was just Florensis, but it's I might Floriensis. Be... I think, it, I think it's Floriensis. Oh, yeah. okay. The pygmy people. Oh. <laughs> and, and of course, the Homo sapiens. Um, but the, the big thing 
today with like 23andMe is like, how much Neanderthal am I? Um, and they'll give you a percentage and what traits you have similar to them. Um, and so they're like, of course, we interbred with them. And I know I'm about to bring up a question that is above my pay grade. And I'm not sure if maybe, hopefully, maybe one of you guys can explain this to me. Um, we're, we're calling these guys different species. But isn't the whole theory of species mean, or like, if you're if one species breeds with another species, their offspring are not fertile, right? They're uh, like a horse and a donkey produce a mule. Mules are sterile. They can't keep continue on. Yeah, what? that's the technical definition of a species. But if, there's many, many examples within, you know, the mm-hmm. biological world of that just. There's many exceptions, is what I should say. Okay. Um, so we're calling notably, these species, but maybe we should be give yeah, a better term for they're it. They're genetically distinct, mm-hmm. but there's like many. The to my knowledge, the most examples occur in the plant kingdom. Um, so we're like, uh, what's the word for our our genetics? We're diploid. Mm-hmm. Most plants are mm-hmm. polyploid, so their genetics are just weird. And are they into multiple partners? They're into multiple partners, multiple species mixing to make weird hybrids. I've done some botany work where I'm looking at grasses, which are already hard to identify. And then realizing like, oh, this isn't this species, this species or this species. There is a mix of all of them like in this grass that I'm looking at. And, like, I'm supposed to be reporting what species are around. I'm like, what do I even call this? But, um, yeah, there's there's many, many exceptions to that technical definition is what okay. I'm trying to say. Okay. Um, I, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I was just going to expand. I think it's also a little outdated um, mm-hmm. in terms of in just how we classify things. Like, the Linnaean system of genus, species, subspecies. Like because we've start to we've learned so much more through genetic uh, analysis of everything pretty much that we can, we're like mm, maybe this system isn't super great, but it's what we have, so we're just going to expand on it. Um, so then some things can can interbreed, some things can't, and uh, I think one of the things is that you know like a liger, a mix between a lion and a tiger, is supposed to be sterile. But they're thinking maybe it's not sterile. Um, yeah, they, they've like they've been unsuccessful, but they think that it might be possible. But other people are like, no, it's definitely not. And again, that just raises the question of, um, okay, like how how do we actually define species and speciation over time? Hmm. Uh, yeah, there's really no good definition for a species. <laughs> it's it's kind of like a model where. You know, no models are right, but some of them are useful. Gotcha. Oh, I, I always tell students I work with um, <laughs> is that there's always an exception in biology. <laughs> yeah, literally every rule or definition that a professor gives you about biology, there's going to be at least one readily available exception to that <laughs> without fail. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, but I do, okay, kind of going back to talking about um, other hominids, uh, other species or not uh, other uh, other members of the genus Homo. Only Homo sapiens have have ever uh, or were ever landed on the the continent. So 
um, in wait, thinking wait, about. Can you explain? Can you explain that? What which continent are you talking about? North and South America. Sorry, the ones uh, of concern today. Mm. So North and South America l- probably only ever had Homo sapiens present on it. It likely didn't have like Neanderthals never made it to. Oh, to North America. oh man, guys, um, do you think we can do a, a whole episode on human evolution? Yeah, of course. I studied abroad in Tanzania, so the birth, like the birthplace it. of Homo naledi. Yeah, and I think. I might be wrong about that. A bunch of others. Cut, cut that out. I, I don't want to be wrong. No, leave no, it no, in. I'm leaving it in. I'm leaving <laughs> it in. We'll, we'll answer the question. We'll clarify that when we talk about them in, the, in that episode. So refer to that one if you want to know. Yeah. So I was actually just talking to a student about this today. We were going over different species of, of human because that's what homo means. It means human. So there's multiple species of human, which just astounded her. She was like, what it's like yeah we're not alone well we are now but <laughs> that we <laughs> one know time of. we weren't right that we know of yeah there are actually still reports of homo floresiensis like still existing maybe slash like existed in the very recent past hmm. the like the the fossils for homo floresiensis were found in uh, like Indonesia area, the Southeast Asian Pacific Islands, and yeah. the the local Homo sapien populations uh, still talk about a very tiny person that they used to oh, live with. Hmm. Yep. Was his name Frodo? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. <laughs> they all had big hairy feet too, is what I heard. <laughs> Homo Frodoensis. Yeah. Well, I mean. I can't, I like, okay, we should definitely do an entire episode on human mm-hmm. evolution and the spread of kind of hominins throughout uh, Africa, Europe, and Asia, because I think it's just fascinating. Yeah, that's but another story for another day, much. though. We got to keep no, on yeah, track here. Essentially, humans may have done some damage in, <laughs> in where we evolved to other species of human, but in North America, likely we're not the cause of mass extinctions events at least during the Pleistocene. Um, and so essentially, sorry, yes, sorry, of course, Spencer, I'm going to interrupt you because I just want to give a spoiler alert that I might refute what you're saying. Ooh, we okay. might have a I little, mean, uh, con conflict in, in okay, our podcast well, here. So essentially, I mean, what, what this, uh, shepherd Creck was saying and kind of what some of the other things I were reading is like, we can't, say that they didn't contribute to the mass extinctions. But in addition to what you're going to talk about, Zach, and with the presence of humans, the combination likely wasn't great. Um, So it wasn't entirely one or the other, but it probably relied more on uh, another thing rather than humans. Um, I don't want to spoil it too much yet, but... Um, but I do, I do want to just say that, yes, there is evidence of humans killing megafauna. Um, there have been uh, evidence of stone tools, spear tips uh, found dis, like lodged inside of megafauna bones, um, you know, carv- carving like markings, kind of like chiseling meat away from bone using stone tools. That type of evidence for uh, on megafauna is there. It's just not in the abundance that we expect it to be um, for mass extinction events. 
And so anyway, um, yeah. So for, okay. So Mar this Paul Martin guy, this super racist guy, um, he was basically saying uh, all of these remarks about humans causing these mass extinction events during a time when it was thought that humans arrived around 10,000 to 13,000 years ago to the North American continent. How they arrived was the land bridge that formed between Siberia and Alaska during, I mean, it formed, disappeared, reformed many times during the Pleistocene as those glacier events and kind of cycles of warming, cooling happened. Um, but during one of the later ones, that's when humans arrived, or at least that's what it was thought for a long time, especially by this Paul Martin guy. And uh, uh, that was around that. Essentially, the timeline is humans arrived and a few thousand years later is when all these species or a lot of these species started to go extinct. And the argument is, um, OK, if if they were slaughtering these animals, like Paul Martin said, why did it take two millennia for <laughs> for these humans to cause these mass extinctions event? Um, well, okay, were they slow moving uh, across the continent? Well, there's evidence that they were actually pretty fast moving. They likely, uh, some made it inland over the Rocky Mountains and spread through the center of the continent, while others continued down the coast. Um, others used uh, boats to continue down the coast, you know, uh, canoes and stuff like that. But essentially, um, the argument is, yes, humans were hunting these animals and they were following herds of these animals south, but they weren't killing so much in abundance that it was causing like mass extinction event after mass. Well, I shouldn't say mass extinction after mass extinction, like localized extinction, localized extinction as they move down the continent, um, because it's been displaced by a few thousand uh, years, which is a long time. So, um, but anyway, but evidence now supports that humans probably arrived even earlier than even when Paul Martin was uh, estimating it somewhere, even up to, I saw the oldest evidence of humans um, or the oldest estimate of humans on North America was 26,000 years ago. Um, but most people support that humans arrived about 20,000 years ago. So that's 10,000 years that these humans and these megafauna were ex existing side by side. And yeah, they were hunting these species, but like they weren't causing these mass extinction events one after another, I suppose. Um, okay, I do want to, to kind of preface, not preface, um, talk about earwax really fast. Um, <laughs> Excuse yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So touch your, touch your earwax. I mean, you're probably wearing headphones, but you've probably yeah, had some headphones inside your ear and take them out and your earwax is kind of goopy, right? mine i i i can't fit earbuds in my ears oh that's because you're a wrestler but i um, use q-tips five times a day so they're never goopy they're never goopy but if they were goopy they would be goopy right true like a pool, <laughs> if they like were a goopy, swimming pool yes so yes they would be goopy. compare your earwax to a person of a asian descent's earwax i've never People... stuck my finger into <laughs> an asian person's well, ear the next person you find of Asian descent, get consent and ask them if you can feel right. their earwax. I'm going to text, I'm gonna text earwax, my buddy right now. Tomorrow's going to be awkward Perfect. at work. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So 
Uh, if you feel their earwax, their earwax is going to feel hard and crystal-like. And that's a big difference between African-European earwax, which is goopy and kind of mushy, versus Asian earwax, which is hard and crystallized. Um, now, where do you think I'm going with this? Pray tell. What well, early... if you check oh. the earwax of people of, uh, of North American indigenous descent... They're going to have crystal, crystal, likely crystal, yes. crystally yes. earwax. So the the evidence is there that um, that people from Asia, specifically the northern Siberia area, um, were the ones that migrated into North America. There's actually sense to support what you're saying, Spencer. There's actually a lot of linguistic evidence to support that theory too. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember the exact words. But um, there are words in, like, say, Korean that are almost exactly the same in, say, like, Ojibwe or, or Anishinaabe, I should say, uh, and mm-hmm. other, you know, Native American languages. I, I did read that as well, um, which is pretty cool uh, that it exists that way. So there's a lot of evidence that that's where, you know, the those uh, indi- current indigenous people are descendants of those who d- are descendants of those people. And yeah, so anyway, I just wanted to highlight that because I thought that was really cool. There was a, a professor uh, at the current college that I teach at. He, he moved on in his career and is now somewhere else, but he was of Asian descent. So every, uh, every, every year in one of his labs, he would get everybody to get their earwax out and they'd all look at it under the microscope and he'd talk about these differences. And then he'd highlight the the uh, North American and South American indigenous earwax as well, which is kind of fun. So back on track, since the extinction of megafauna is thousands of thousands and thousands of years after, it's likely that humans hunting probably did not was probably not the sole reason that these megafauna went extinct. Again, I don't want to spoil what Zach's going to talk about, uh, but whatever. And another reason is that this Paul Martin guy, I keep referring to him because this was kind of like the main ideal set for so long, is that people of the first people, peoples of America were just voracious meat eaters as well. And all these other anthropologists were like, what in the world makes it makes you think that the first people in North America were not unlike every other culture that has existed on planet Earth? in terms of that they were hunters and gatherers. <laughs> and yeah, Paul was very much against that side of things, which is incredibly dumb. Classic but, Paul. Yeah, classic Paul, right? Um, so anyway, but yeah, there's definitely evidence of uh, early uh, people in North America eating things like fish, shellfish, plants, other small animals, invertebrates, um, and then it was the occasional big game. It wasn't just big game. It was the occasional big game, something that they could hunt um, to kind of keep themselves over winter time or whatever. I mean, granted, in some areas it was always winter. But, yeah, they weren't just hunting the big things. They were also hunting the small things, which is like, why didn't all of the small creatures go extinct then? If humans were hunting everything, why did some things go extinct and not others? Well, again, I don't want to spoil Zach's stuff here. Either way, humans managed to survive these, the, the end of the Pleistocene and continue to spread out throughout North and South America. And it's estimated that by the time the super racist guy, Christopher Columbus, 
um, came over <laughs> in 1492 that there was upward of about 50 million people living uh, in the Americas at the time, um, which doesn't seem like a lot now, but that is a lot back then. So it wasn't empty. North America was not empty. <laughs> it was a thriving and diverse array of people with different cultures, different languages. Like So upwards of like 2,000 languages were spoke before the arrival of the Europeans. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, also, humans... Christopher Columbus wasn't even the first European to visit North oh, America. Yeah. No, like, no, no, no. the Vikings were visiting Canada and like Newfoundland, like for thousands of years before. Oh yeah, before for sure. Christopher yeah. Columbus showed up. I just wanted to highlight the the the, the guy the who classic came and took up all of them as slaves and said, "Here's some smallpox in return." <laughs> Jesus. So. But yeah, I mean that's humans. Um, Zach, I would I'm excited to hear what you have to say. I figured if any of them, or if anyone, if anyone's going was going to refute anything I said, it would likely be you, Zach. Yeah, it's because I'm really argumentative. Oh no, I just meant the animals that you picked, but I guess also that too. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I did, yeah. I there is some evidence. Uh, I know that they have found specific evidence of. Not in the megatherium, but other ground sloth or giant ground sloth interactions with humans, which is kind of fun. Well, I don't know about megatherium. Sean, I'm sure you will talk about that. But yeah, I mean, that's the spread of humans in like a very short nutshell. There's a lot there uh, and a lot more we could expand on. But we, we got to move on, I suppose. So, After a word from our sponsors. All right. Well, welcome back, guys. Uh, hope you guys. Got hey, guys. Today. Welcome back to the Megatherium Club <laughs> podcast. <laughs> do, 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 Here do. today, we got Sean Lewis, Spencer Stout, and yours truly, Zach Smith. Here to talk to you today about uh, the end of the Pleistocene Epoch. So at the end of the Pleistocene Epoch, there was a devastating mass extinction of megafauna. Now let's define what megafauna are. Megafauna are usually described as basically any animal over 50 kilograms. So technically, me, Sean, Spencer, and you are all megafauna. Is my gain up really high? No, you're good. We're good? Okay. I don't actually know what gain is. I just know it can be high. <laughs> My gains are pretty good. Just I, I lifted yesterday, so... <laughs> gains, boy. I, I actually had to look that up, because I was like, I'm not over 50 kilograms. Yeah, I am. That's, that's yeah, 100, yeah, 110 you pounds. I'm, yeah, yeah, you're definitely over 50 My My kilos. butt is 50 kilograms. Oh. Uh, <laughs> What was I talking about? Oh, we're talking about the the end of the Pleistocene, the end of the megafauna. So so the the Pleistocene ended with some extinctions, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah. The Pleistocene is, the Pleistocene epoch is actually marked by the mass extinctions that we see in the fossil records of these megafaunal species, like woolly mammoths, woolly rhinos, uh, megatheriums, which our podcast is named after, and many other animals globally and there are uh, traditionally three hypotheses about why these mass extinctions happen it's kind of been a mystery that's baffled scientists for you know generations at this point um so the first hypothesis that is talked about and thrown around 
is the one that Spencer has been already talking about is the Blitzkrieg theory or the overkill hypothesis that was uh, thrown out by our our super cool racist man Paul Martin. Okay. Jesus. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's it's termed the Blitzkrieg theory uh, after the you know the German attacks on Britain called the Blitzkrieg, and essentially it's that. People overhunted these uh, large animals to extinction, and there, like contrary to what Spencer has been saying, uh, there is some evidence that humans at least contributed to the uh, mass extinctions of megafauna, and all of this is honestly purely coincidental. But it's hard to show that people did not have any impact. And um, one of the, you know, main uh, pillars, I guess, holding up the Blitzkrieg theory is something called the Clovis Point. Uh, So the Clovis Point is like, it's basically a spear point or an arrowhead that was essentially a technological revolution for the people of that time to be able to hunt and hunt giant things like mammoths. Uh, So it was like this stone, like a flint, it was a flint nap stone edge that was fluted on both faces. And it's, I'm I'm looking at a picture of one right now, and it's like serrated and it's fluted on both sides. So these points are theorized to have given people the capabilities to hunt megafauna like mammoths. And we know that people did actually go out of their way to hunt and kill mammoths because we've, we've found sites with uh, mammoth bones and like essentially butchering sites where they butcher these mammoths and there's bones that have these uh, marks from stone tools and they found these Clovis points in them. And originally these Clovis points were found in like uh, the New Mexico, like Southeast North or Southeast United States area. Uh, near Clovis, New Mexico, which is where they get their name. Um, and uh, some of the other coincidental uh, evidence is that as uh, people, like Homo sapiens, I should say, evolved in Africa, you start to see these mass extinctions from the Pleistocene everywhere they go as they arrive. So globally, you can see these mass extinctions happening in like uh, like areas from Africa to Asia to like Russia, basically like Eurasia, and then even in Australia and like several I- and lots of islands, I guess. Where as people arrive, basically megafauna diversity plummets. I want to I want to just stop you right there. Doesn't Africa have some of the most megafauna to this day? So why yeah. why, why do they still exist? If humans they, started there, well, how are they still there? Yeah, so that is actually thought to be an example of coevolution. So there's a lot more megafauna that we see in Africa that actually started in North America, like lions. Correct me if I'm wrong, but lions evolved in North America and then during maximal glacial periods when there's lower sea levels we're able to uh, move basically like cross continents 
a, in, eventually ending up into Africa where people evolved. And through coevolution, they're used to the presence of people and they've adapted to survive in the presence of Homo sapiens. Does that does that all make sense to you guys? Yeah, I, I get where it's coming from for sure. Uh, it is. It, I mean, it is quite interesting. Um, yeah, I, I get it. Yeah, I, I get it. Yeah. I guess I, I my classic definition of coevolution is like evolving together to maybe maybe my definition is wrong. Like benefit each other is that or is that mutualism? Uh, that would be mutualism. Oh, okay. So coevolution it's is yes, evolving. evolving side yeah, evolving together side by side. Yeah, so, it doesn't necessarily mean a good relationship. I got yeah. You, I got so they're like one of the classic examples of coevolution is a quote unquote evolutionary arms race. Mm-hmm. Um, one example of that is like garter snakes and I think toads. So toads create a toxin that is toxic to anything that eats them but garter snakes have been able to evolve to be able to tolerate this toxin that's produced by the toads what they're eating their prey and then in turn these toads have evolved a stronger toxin but then the snakes evolve stronger resistances and this process happens like continuously until these toads are super toxic and now the only things that could possibly ever eat them is the garter snake. <laughs> uh, I do a... want to... Oh, sorry. I was going to interrupt. There's a, there's another example of why giraffe necks are so long. And it's like, oh, well, giraffes were eating like low, like low like shrubbed trees, essentially. And then the trees got taller. So giraffe's necks got taller. That is wrong. Yeah, that's wrong. <laughs> that's not how giraffes evolved. <laughs> um, that's a that like you'll commonly see that even in some textbooks, less so I think nowadays um, about why giraffes' necks are so long. It's like well they were eating trees and then the trees were taller and then the giraffes were taller and then the trees got taller. Nope, different situation entirely. So yeah, giraffes likely uh, evolved to have longer necks for essentially fighting (laughs) each other (laughs) so uh but anyway uh i wanted to bring up that example in case other people were thinking of that one because it's wrong (laughs) thank you for that yeah Yeah. thank you i think the the basic theory there is right just the example is false (laughs) i i I never heard that the lion started in north america so i quickly looked and it the internet from what i am seeing claims it started in east africa Oh, and, it started in East Africa. And, and the, the ones that uh, made their way to North America via the land bridge just came from a lineage of cave lions. So, uh, And they didn't make it there until about 165,000 years ago. So doesn't seem like they traveled from America to Africa. All right, we'll cut that part out because I, <laughs> I was wrong. Uh, that's okay. I, I think... Uh, I, I'm not gonna. I don't want to spoil what I want to talk about when I want to talk about one of my creatures in terms of like movement from one area to another. But like it was still fitting with your model, Zach, which is quite interesting. Uh, so I'll, maybe I'll highlight that when we when we talk about one of my animals. Yeah, we'll just like cut out everything about lions. I totally just <laughs> made that shit up. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I'm going to have to leave it in there because it's so entwined in the conversation yeah. that we're having. Uh, but we'll make sure that, Zach, it's okay. Maybe you make something else up. We're humans. Uh, you're good. I'm four <laughs> beers in, so I don't even care at this point. <laughs> the Mega Ethereum Club forgives you. Um, <laughs> so, all right. Back back to extinction. So talking about coevolution, but talking about where people went, death followed, which I, I can't argue against that because it's still occurring. <laughs> yeah, still it's, occurring. it's still occurring. And it actually brings up a quote from E.O. Wilson that I found. And he's quoted as saying that we share the planet with a roughly estimated 10 million other species. They are being extinguished at a rate between 100 and 1,000 times faster than before the arrival of our own species. And I, I think this kind of highlights the impact that uh, people, you know, prehistorically, historically, and currently are having on, you know, our local ecosystems and ecosystems worldwide. Uh, there's really no, as, as remote of an ecosystem as you can find. There is nowhere that has not at least been indirectly touched by people. And I, I just want to give you a second for that to for that to sink in. That's and pretty deep. Yeah. It yeah. It's like, you know, climate change, I, I personally believe, and I believe that both of you also believe that it is not only accelerated, but it is caused by people. And there's no ecosystem on Earth that is unaffected by climate change. And you can go as deep into the ocean as you want, and you're still going to find you know microplastics snowing down from above basically or just straight up like plastic bottles <laughs> not even just not even <laughs> just the microplastics just trash yeah yeah just like straight up trash which i mean that's as we were talking about earlier how we're in the holocene there are some geologists that are arguing that we have actually started our own geologic epoch called the anthropocene based on just the sheer amount of trash everywhere specifically plastics um but that's a that's a side tangent moving on uh another theory of why you know megafauna went extinct basically globally is the climate like (laughs) that's a, a good transition actually i guess into a changing climate um so as many of our listeners might know uh climate change is pretty it changes periodically throughout Earth's history, throughout our 4.6 billion years of, of you know, Earth's history. The climate changes pretty, it changes naturally based on the rotation of the Earth and its orbit around the sun. But there were some pretty abrupt changes going on during the Pleistocene where things are starting to warm up really fast at least geologically speaking. They're warming up faster now, but that's that's another topic for a different time. And these abrupt changes to climate uh, really impacted a lot of the big animals because think it's the Ice Age, right? Things are cold, and to survive being cold, animals start to adapt by evolving to be bigger. Um, so, like Scientifically, this is more of a... It's a a volume to surface area ratio that allows animals to retain more heat 
And so they're using less energy to maintain their body temperature, essentially. Um, and as the climate warms up, they're maladapted to that warmer environment and they start evolving to be smaller. But because the climate is changing so rapidly and one of the basic you know, biologies of large mammals is that they reproduce slowly and therefore evolve slowly, they could not keep up with the change in temperature. And they went extinct because they were maladapted to these new environments. And yeah, that's, that's the second theory. <laughs> Do you guys have, have any comments or questions on that one? It's a pretty no, simple one and straightforward. That's generally what, uh, what I heard. I mean, everything I read, it was like all of these theories, they're all probably at the, like co-occurring at the same time not one is happening well maybe not necessarily more than the other but they're all contributing right so all right what what's the third one zach yeah the third one i found was disease and that one is kind of bs (laughs) (laughs) there's there's like (laughs) i didn't really see like any evidence for that one um yeah, it just like exists as a theory, but all of the evidence points to a combination of either of the Blitzkrieg theory and climate change. So basically, it's it's like the climate's changing really fast. It's getting too hot for these big mammals to survive. It's, you know, like woolly mammoths, they've got big woolly coats that like, it's too hot for them. And they can't evolve fast enough to keep up with the changing climate. And on top of that, they've got people coming in with these brand new Clovis points and they're hunting high you down. Tech. Yeah, it, these high tech Clovis points that were flint napped by some poor guy for like two days and he probably cut himself really bad doing it. Um <laughs> Have you ever seen those people like on YouTube flint napping? I've never seen them cut themselves, but yeah. Well, they've got like these huge, like basically animal hides around their knee while they're flint napping, specifically so it doesn't cut them. Do you you think early humans couldn't have figured that out? I mean, they they probably did through experience. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, oh, shoot. Like, I just lacerated my femoral artery. I better put a cloth over that next time. God dang it. I keep cutting myself. Why why can't I stop? Yeah. Yeah, they probably did figure it out, but it took a a couple tries. Right. Yeah, they invented this super high-tech spear point, but they couldn't do a a cloth (laughs) right right right. love it okay but uh yeah so changing climate you can't keep up with it and these new predators are hunting you down uh yeah i think that spells disaster for a lot of different species um and from you know the the homo sapiens point of view i don't think it was necessarily like intentionally destructive because these people migrated here across the Beringia land bridge and they're just trying to survive off of whatever they can find in this barren wasteland of a tundra that they've come across. Oh, and... well, I'll stop you right there because I want to comment on something. Are, are we positive that no one came here by boat? 
No, that everybody there... came here across the bridge. Uh, in North America, there is no evidence of people coming by boat. In okay. South America, there is. Okay, that's that's what I was thinking mm-hmm. about. But uh, I'll, I'll let you keep going. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the things about the Pleistocene is that uh, not like in the Pleistocene, not. Let me rephrase that. The not in the entirety of the Pleistocene, I think South America and North America were not connected. Correct. I think at the end of it, they were finally connected. That is Isma of Panama, right? Yeah, the Isthmus. Is Isthmus? Um, mm-hmm. That's it. Finally connected the two. So yeah. So but that like, that I created think... like a whole like slew of issues for ecosystems too, right? Oh yeah, as as the I mean that could be that I think as far as South American megafauna that is one of the theories about why those ones went extinct uh, is because when those when these two continents finally connected both of these isolated ecosystems are finally able to merge and interact with each other and basically North American predators won. Uh, there, I want to do a quick shout out of one South American predator that did pretty well, the uh, the terror bird, <laughs> oh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> one that absolutely demolished. Uh, but that's another episode. So, um, anyway, yeah, cool. Continue, Zach. Well, that's basically all I got. Oh, did you 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 don't have the fourth theory? <laughs> Tell me the fourth theory, Sean. Oh, I will have Break the fourth you, wall. This this one's my favorite theory. And it's it's called the fireball theory. And I, I think, you know, I'm not I'm not a professional here, but I wanna I wanna say that this this is a cool one. Um so there's evidence out there that something you know, an asteroid, let's say, imagine the great extinction of the, the dinosaurs 66 million years ago. And yes, I did say 66, not 65. <gasps> Woo, another episode. But um, a, a, a fireball asteroid, if you will, uh, hit the Earth around 12,900 years ago, and it landed in North America. The, North America is like a magnet for these things in relation to great uh, extinctions, <laughs> it seems. Um there's, there's not a lot of strong evidence to convert everyone to this idea yet, but there's, there, there is evidence that something large hit the Earth around then, which is, that's right before the end of the Pleistocene, right? Yeah. 12,000 years ago? Yeah. Uh, so, not really. It's like a couple thousand years early. Maybe, you know, I mean, if, if one big one hit and caused the whole slew of extinctions 66 million years ago like how fast did those extinctions occur i don't think a lot of it was instantaneous a lot of things died very fast in the area but there were you know problems down the road for probably millennia that further increased extinctions right i would give it maybe as far as like north american megafauna i would give it consideration Mm-hmm. But as far as like global megafaunal extinctions, like in South America and Eurasia and Australia, nah. Oh, Australia is another one that uh, has its own like uh, 
there's 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 plenty it's got of own research. Mysteries. Yeah, own mysteries with human interactions and whether or not they caused it. And um, I will say, I I, I I too read a book uh, before this that also kind of refuted Paul Martin's idea about the overkill hypothesis. And if you guys are interested, it's called The End of the Megafauna. Pretty fitting there. And it's by Ross McAfee. Um, but so it, it'll, it, ref, it refutes or like discusses Paul Martin's theories and um, also every other theory out there. And while by the end of the book, you're probably like, okay, well, which one is it? And I think it's just like a uh, one after the other. You can't say just just killing or just climate change or just disease or even one big fireball did it did it to them all um you know it's like today think species are dying because well we're we're doing a lot of pollution the climate's changing we're also killing them we're introducing other species that are killing things uh species are introducing themselves because we've introduced other species and over competition is happening you know it's a whole slew of problems that eventually leads to extinctions and i think that's kind of what took place back in the Pleistocene, at the end of at the end of it, at least, right? There was a lot of things going on. Yeah, um, but we we aren't here to tell you which of the you know what what led to it exactly. We're not professionals again in this field, um, yeah. but we, yeah, we do have the right tools to do research and let you guys do some thinking for yourself. Um. Spencer, do you want to start us off here on the cool animals? Uh, sure. I'll quickly talk about, uh, yeah, I don't know if we want to kind of take turns or not, but I'll talk about one of them to get started. Um, I want to talk about bison. And no, not the fluffy uh, cows that you find in Yellowstone that people think is okay to go pet and cuddle with. Wait, so before you go anywhere, are they bison or buffaloes? Because there's a difference, oh, okay. right, with, with like the European bison and the American buffalo? So uh, buffalo specifically is supposed to refer to African buffalo, like oh, the water okay. buffalo. Um, it, it was a British uh, – well, that was like the British term for what those animals were called in Africa. Mm. And they're all bovine animals. And when explorers in North America were kind of discovering these species and trying to come up with names, well, one of the things that one guy was like, oh, these are like the buffalo. And so that name kind of stuck, but it's not the correct name. Um, so there is, there are North American bison and uh, there are European bison and then there are buffalo. They're all like the buffalo are distinct in that they're buffalo and then there are bison, the bison that you would find in Yellowstone. And the European ones are look a lot like that. They're, they're in the same uh, gotcha. okay. uh, uh, genus. My uncle got uh, charged by a buffalo in Yellowstone. I thought Be- we just said they're bison. bison. <laughs> <laughs> Zach, are you uh, paying attention? <laughs> so, I have so, a yeah. story. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> what, did, what did your uncle do to... It could have been a buffalo. Maybe somebody brought a buffalo from Africa. Yeah, yeah. There was a water buffalo there, which is why he had his camera out. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was totally a water buffalo. No, just kidding. It was it was an American bison at Yellowstone. And uh, my uncle did the classic national park thing of getting way too close to take a picture of it. And uh, his wife at the time uh, goes, oh, look, he's coming in for his close-up <laughs> as the bison is charging him. And hits him right in the chest. What? Yeah. He actually was hit by this thing? He was hit by the bison. <laughs> and, like, with one horn on either side of him, basically. And he was lucky that he just got, like, the basically the forehead to the chest. And, yeah. I, I'm i so glad. Not, okay, I'm not glad that your uncle was absolutely headbutted. Oh, I think it's bison, hilarious. But, uh, <laughs> I am glad that he was... This brings up a good example uh, because I'm not talking about the bison, the North American or the American bison, which is, uh, in case for uh, those who didn't know, is the national mammal of the United States, which is kind of cool. Uh, that That's a new, recent change. I think Obama did that. Oh, that's also uh, very ironic. Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean? I mean, because we nearly we almost uh, drove them we, to extinction. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that's why. Like, because they're so resilient. Like, they're they're the spirit of America. Um, huh. And they represent like one, like the American West, and most of well, I mean, they roamed around mo- like all of the great uh, plains, which is a lot of America, <laughs> like the center of America, the heart of America, and then also represents so many other things in terms of like indigenous cultures that resided over the area but the spirit of those people as well so yeah the obama administration was like we need a national mammal and we have the perfect one and so they named it the bison which if you wanted to know the uh, scientific name for the american bison it's bison bison very easy to remember hey hey i got a joke for you okay i'm listening what did the the dad buffalo say to his son when he went to school What's that? Bye, son. Oh, oh. <laughs> you get it? That's I get it. You get it? Like bison? Bye, bison, son. But, but they're buffalo, so he would have just said bye, son. Yeah, it's a joke. Take it or leave it. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I'm so anyway, it. so buffalo are different. Buffalo are... Um, uh, buffalo belong to uh, Africa and Eurasia. There, there are bison uh, out there as well, but bison in uh, in North America. But there are bovines, so you know, closely related in in different ways. I want to talk about not the bison, bison, but rather bison latifrons. I think how you say that. Um, also known as the long torn or giant bison. Which is crazy to me that there's a giant version of already a giant creature. <laughs> yeah, they Could you estimate how much it weighs? Which one? The the bison latifrons or the bison bison? Both. Both. What's yeah, both. both. Well, both. let's go give into us, that. Give I, us some context to how big ha- this, this okay. buff so was. I'll call it the modern bison as in the North American bison. So the modern bison is around 300 to... 318 to about 1,200 kilograms, or 700 to 2,500 pounds. Pretty That's big range huge. there. The largest one ever recorded was 2,800 pounds, God. and there are some estimates that they that there are a few individual males that got up to 3,000 pounds. Sheesh. Um, 
They stood at an average height of around 9.3, or sorry, not height, uh, length of around 9.3 feet and an average height of about four and a half foot tall. Their horns reached about three foot from tip to tip, so including the skull in between about three feet there. So luckily just wide enough for your uncle to not get skewered by one of those uh, those horns. Oh my God, you're still talking about the, the modern bison. I'm still talking about the the small version of the, <laughs> oh, of, of the animal. You, so by the, the bison, descriptions, I was thinking of like a longhorn cow. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I, yeah. Well, but like on steroids. And, oh, wow, beyond steroids. So the bison latifrons um, comes at comes in at around twelve hundred and fifty to around two thousand kilograms. Or twenty seven hundred to four thousand pounds, and those are just estimates because we only have fossils of these guys. And they stood around eight foot tall, so twice as tall, and measured fifteen feet long. <laughs> now, as a reminder, three feet from tip to tip for the modern bison horns. Uh, what are your guesses for the the horn widths of the giant bison? Nine. 9.1, Bob. Okay, you're a little long, but I set you up for that. It's anywhere from about 4.7 to 7.3 feet across. So likely taller than me. Yeah, um, longer across than I am tall. Like, I could comfortably <laughs> put my bed on his head. I can imagine putting, like, my hammock on either end and just kind of, like, lounging in between them. And, yeah... In it, so if you compare the skeletons of modern, well, any bison really, uh, doesn't matter what species it is, they're all going to have on their vertebrate these long spines that kind of stick off the back, um, similar to how you might look at like a Spinosaurus. Um, but unlike a Spinosaurus, it likely wasn't like a sail, uh, but rather these were very much underneath the skin. And you can kind of tell that in modern bison because they're kind of humped back, but on the giant bison, these things were huge. And it's thought that because they had these giant spines, that the muscle attachments from those spines connecting to the rest of their body, specifically their legs, allowed them to have just an incredible stride. So these things, in addition to being huge, were fast, which is scary. <laughs> and there, There's no real good estimate that I found, but a lot faster than modern bison. Um, which are fast. Uh, I can't remember what the exact thing is. Maybe somebody can look that up. 35 but miles an hour. Is that what it says? Total guess. <laughs> oh, I don't know. That seems about right. So, yeah, they're fast. I mean, your uncle would know. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Weren't some of those muscle attachments to help with, like, the their neck muscles and, like, for to head, hold for their head up? Oh, and that, yeah. Ooh, okay, you got ahead of me there. Oh, sorry. You got ahead of oh. me there. That's okay. We'll get there. We'll get there. I just Googled um, it. Exactly 35 miles an hour. Nice. Modern ones? Yeah. Bison oh, may nice. be big, but they're also fast. They can run up to 35 miles an hour, plus they're extremely <sighs> agile, according to the U.S. Department of the Interior, www.doi.gov. Yeah, you do not want to mess with bison. Do so, anybody. PSA: Don't go to Yellowstone and do what Zach's uncle did. <laughs> don't do what the people did, where they took a baby bison into their car. What? You guys didn't hear about I that. I heard about that. So these these awful. tourists found 
what they thought was an abandoned baby bison. And they're like, oh my God, it's abandoned. So they put it into their van How and small brought it this? to the station. I mean, it was like a baby cow, like a like a large animal that they squeezed into their car oh, okay. or their big van. They brought it to the station and the station's like, what are you doing? It probably wasn't abandoned, probably just like wandered off or the herd was just somewhere that you couldn't see. They took the the baby back. The herd then rejected it <gasps> after multiple times of trying to get it incorporated back into the herd. And they were actually forced to euthanize it, forced to euthanize it because it would it was going to die on its own. Um, so they had to kill it all because these people thought it was abandoned. So they thought they were doing the right thing, but they really weren't. So just leave wildlife alone. Jeez. We could do an entire episode of Idiots in National Parks. <laughs> that would be a great one. Your uncle would be a co-host. would be a great co-host. I hope he listens to this episode. <laughs> Good. Um, so anyway, back to the giant bison. So the fossils have been found out or found throughout North America, but are definitely concentrated in like the lower 48 or the U.S. proper, whatever you want to call it. Now, <laughs> the U.S. So, proper, because Alaska is not proper. <laughs> <laughs> right uh so anyway bison as like a genus uh evolved around two million years ago uh they evolved in eurasia um so they were one of the species that came also came across uh the land bridge from siberia up into alaska and then spread out through um through north america which is crazy because when i generally think of the bison I mean, granted, I'm an American, so I'm obviously biased. I think of America like I don't think of European bison and, and all that sorts of fun stuff. But I also wanted to highlight quickly um, one that did the reverse that we also have these stereotypes for is that when you think of camels, where do you think of? <laughs> Egypt. Saudi Arabia. Egypt, right? Middle East. No, camels are a North American species, but they went extinct in North America, but managed to survive in, in Eurasia. So while they are a Eurasian type of animal now, and that's what we think of them as, they actually came from North America. So I can't... Are they one of the I, examples of animals that started in North America and actually prospered in South America? And that's why we have camel oh ancestors or... Gosh, things are in South America that are related to camels today. Yes, there yes, that's exactly why. Okay, yeah, like uh, llamas and uh, alpacas and stuff. And gachus, right? Yeah, is that the word I'm trying to say? I think so. What? Oh gosh, what's it? <laughs> I don't know. It's it's a po- it's sounds a like Pokemon. a Pokemon. <laughs> sounds uh, like an art creature. Yeah, it could be soon. Gachupe. So, no. <laughs> I'm googling uh, this right now. Oh, Guanaco. Oh, Guan- that's I don't know Guanacos? why I said gotcha. It's like an alpaca, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's yeah. They're all Llama. camel guanacos. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. That's yeah. what I. Yeah. They escaped down into South America, and yeah, they evolved into what's known today to be like alpacas and uh llamas and guan and guanacos yeah what's that yeah oh that's the species name yeah yeah cool yeah so anyway that's that's a cool tangent i i always like to kind of go on but anyway back to the to the 
to the to the bison. So modern bison, as we are probably well aware, live in large herds that protect each other. So they have like a not necessarily a complex social hierarchy, but they are social animals. However, evidence shows that the giant bison were likely not that type of animal at all. In fact, they were more solitary, similar to what you might expect from moose, and that they also lived in similar areas where you might find modern moose, so more forested areas rather than the open plains. And the idea is that one, because they were solitary, or because they preferred these forested areas, they just couldn't sustain like large herds like the open plains could. But you would find them in that area, in those areas as well. They just preferred, or at least the evidence shows, they probably preferred more edge to plains and forest rather than just open plains like you'd see in modern bison. And so, okay, Sean, you kind of alluded to something a little earlier, but modern as your uncle is also aware of, Zach, modern bison, when they defend, if they're going to defend, because they're more likely bison and then their ancestor bison antiquus are more likely uh, to defend against a predator by flight. So running away. But if they have to fight, they're going to do a headbutting technique where they run, run straight forward and headbutt using the middle of their head. So that's why their horns aren't necessarily as big and long compared to the giant bison. So because the giant bison was so big, it's thought that their fight or flight response was definitely on the side of fight. So if a predator came at them, they weren't gonna run away. They were gonna stand their ground and fight back and fight not with a headbutt, but with a hook because their horns were just so big and they could hook their heads around and kind of try to skewer the American lion or the saber-toothed cat that was coming after them. So a little different of a defense technique compared to the modern uh, bison that you find today. Hooking rather than headbutting, which is kind of fun. Huh. Badass, bro. So, they're so, so cool. Now, kind of finishing up here with these with these guys is that there's no currently no evidence for humans hunting them as these creatures likely went extinct just before or like as soon as humans arrived. Um, and it's like there's no evidence of humans interacting with their bones. Um, and so the idea is they went, they went extinct around 20,000 years ago, which is kind of the earlier dates that most anthropologists say that humans arrived to North America. So there likely wasn't any interaction. And what likely caused their demise was during the Wisconsin glaciation and the the ending of that period likely caused two dramatic changes within North America for them to be able to, to sustain themselves when there was other species of bison, 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 and bison antiquas that were doing so much better than them. We don't know why they went extinct exactly, but they went extinct probably not due to humans because there's no evidence for that uh, at all uh, as it stands right now. So that's bison, the giant bison, bison latifrons. So if somebody else wants to take it away or do you want me to talk about my other animal? Uh, I'll, I'll uh, discuss mine. And okay, then, yeah. Uh, we, we can see if maybe Zach wants to go next. But uh, I'll, I'll start off with uh, the glyptodonts. Uh, if you don't know what a glyptodont is, imagine an armadillo, but bigger, like like small car sized even, a very heavily he- a very heavily armored creature. 
Uh, some even had maces or clubs at the end of their tail that could probably do some serious damage. Uh, popping up around 48 million years ago and lasting until the end of the Pleistocene, these walking tanks range from South America to the southern parts of North America. They share a family, which I am going to butcher, Clam... <laughs> Clamiforidae, Clamiforidae, with the all the modern ardim, with all the modern armadillos except those in the Dasypodidae, uh, the nine-banded armadillo is likely the one that comes to mind for most of you that may be listening to us, um, at least here in North America. These are in Das Dasypodidae. <laughs> My gosh. Um, Clamiforidae includes the three-banded armadillo, which can roll into a ball, um, and oddly, most armadillos cannot, which, doing research for this, I was like, oh, wow, so the armadillo that we are probably always thinking of when we think armadillo, the nine-banded, is not one capable of rolling into a ball. Uh, Clamiforidae armadillos also appear to be mostly in South America, which makes sense uh, because that is the origin of glyptodonts. Uh, they appear very tortoise-like with their armor consisting of osteoderms or scutes. Uh, apparently different species had different patterns of osteoderms and shell types, which has uh, led paleontologists or has made paleontologists paleontologist jobs. Wow, I am doing great at talking tonight. Um, <laughs> easy when it comes to identifying these guys uh one of my favorites maybe because of the the video game arc uh the doetis doeticurus doetisurus a, a genus of glyptodont with one species doedicurus doedic <laughs> oh my gosh you are so right doedicurus oh, or people in art called the doed uh mm-hmm. with one species the the doed uh, clavicaudatus um, this was discovered in 1847 by the British paleontologist Richard Owen. These animals were estimated to be almost 5 feet tall and about 12 feet long and could reach weights between three to 5,000 pounds. It is no wonder why glyptodonts were considered megafauna. Uh, doeds had an armored tail that could measure over 3 feet long and had a club-like appearance that might have actually had spikes on the tail. So when I said mace, I quite literally meant a huge mace on the end of a creature's tail. Uh, scientists have interpreted depressions on this club as possible attachment sites for these deadly spikes. Uh, what were these spikes used for, you may ask? Uh, well, the, the two main theories are for rival combat and protection. Um, males may have used them in fighting over a mate, hitting each other with the modified tail until one gave up. A lot of male-on-male combat in the animal kingdom seldom ends in mortality, so that's why I imagine just one giving up rather than being literally clubbed to death. Uh, Do you guys refute that, that most male-on-male combat doesn't end in death? Yeah, I'd say most man-on-man action is survived. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. It's, it's not to murder each other. It's just to prove who's better, which doesn't have to end in uh, death. It, it can, for sure. I'm sure there are combats that do, but uh, most of it is just till one gives up. But besides uh, male-on-male combat, the other obvious ideas for protection 
And, well, uh, these guys did need some protection. Uh, Doeds and other glyptodonts lived alongside some of the scariest terrestrial mammalian and avian predators throughout time, like uh, Spencer already suggested. The the terror bird, they, they were out there. The smilodon, which uh, you, you may know better as a saber-toothed cat. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The short-faced bears, which I'm honestly surprised none of us wanted to talk about because these things were terrifying and larger than any bear today, especially the South American ones. Those, that, man, um, it's not an animal I dove into, so I won't uh, speak too much. But if you're interested, do your own research. These, these things were huge. Um, and eventually humans arrived on the scene and there is evidence that early humans did use the shells of these incredible creatures like a giant soup bowl no i'm just kidding about that part but (laughs) um some of the cool facts i mean as if these other facts about it weren't already cool um they're they're kind of like cows where they didn't have canines or incisors they only had cheek teeth and only eight of them. They they lived in grasslands, so it may might have probably made up a large part of their diet, which makes sense. Like cows, they just kind of chew on grass. Uh, no need for canines or incisors. Their shell or carapace uh, was actually anchored to their pelvis, but not attached to their shoulders. Um, I don't. I should have looked up how this compares to other things with shells, but I thought this was really interesting about how their shoulders were loose, uh, but not their hips. Well, turtles and tortoises it definitely grows directly out of their spine. That's okay. yeah, it's okay. like their rib cage expanded into their shell, basically. Gotcha. Uh, so this is definitely a whole different situation. Um, yeah. Huh. Their, their club tail was estimated to weigh over 140 pounds. Just the club part of the tail. Not, not the whole three feet of it. Just, just the end of it. And so, so scientists tried to estimate how hard they could hit something with this club. What, what were they capable of producing force-wise? And they came up with a blow of 2.5 kilojoules or... <laughs> 1800 foot pound force which may even be an underestimate and i don't know about you guys but i'm not i was never great at physics so i I really tried to go in depth on just what that means and i'm I'm trying to understand how much force that is yeah can you give us some context to how much that is absolutely so this this was my best kind of comparison for this the average person can generate 100 to 110 foot pounds um as as a uh, a punch the, which is the equivalent to a basketball being dropped from a 15 story building so uh let's just say if someone's 15 stories up drops a basketball and it hits you in the face that's going to feel about like your your, your buddy hitting you in the face it's it's equivalent or similar force unless your buddy's Mike Tyson uh, <laughs> top boxers like Mike Tyson are said to generate a thousand foot pounds or higher. So the average person, 100, 110, Mike Tyson, 1000. <laughs> that's, oh my gosh. that's why people got knocked the F out 
if they <laughs> got punched by him. Like in uh, what's the movie with him? The the three best friends. Um, oh, The Hangover. Yeah, that movie. One of those movies. He's in it, right? And he punches somebody. Just one hit knocks him out. Yeah. yeah okay. Um. So a thousand foot pounds are of thousand foot pounds force is the equivalent of a hundred ninety seven pound weight being dropped from five feet. So I don't think any of us weigh that. Um, but imagine roughly a two hundred pound person landing on your face after falling just five feet. Now that's what Mike Tyson is going to feel like punching you. And that can quite literally kill a human if it hits the right spot. Um, and now add another 800 foot-pounds of force, and you have the estimated low end of what a doe-ed could do to you. Those <laughs> those were definitely one-shotting early humans. <laughs> so th- these things could almost double a punch from Mike Tyson. And... Just one Mike Tyson punch is enough to kill you if it hits you in the right spot. So almost two of these is would for sure you're you're done. I don't I don't care where that's hitting you, you're either broken leg or dead. <laughs> that's the only option. Broken leg from getting hit in the um, face. So does that kind of put it into perspective, Zach? Uh I think so. Oh, okay. I, for a second, I thought we lost you there. But, I was uh, muted. Oh, <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> you're just still like I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's that was that was probably the coolest fact I looked up about uh, doeds and other glyptodonts. Um, another really cool one I liked was they are a classic example of convergent evolution and. For those of you that don't know what that is, it's where similar features develop in different organisms separated by lineages and even by different time periods or epochs. So classic example is the ability to fly. Flying developed in birds, insects, and bats. As Well, we can also go into flying reptiles in the past, which are not dinosaurs, like pterosaurs, but also there are examples of flying dinosaurs back in the day, but that's that's for another story. But all of these are different evolutionary lineages, and they all developed the ability to fly. Glyptodonts and chylosaurs are... Could fly? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> they, they spun their tails like helicopters and just took off. <laughs> Uh, so glyptodonts and chylosaurs and a group of turtles that I didn't even know existed until I was looking up for this episode from Australia um, called myolanid turtles, myolanid, myolanid turtles. Um, if you guys have not looked this up, I highly recommend looking them up. But they all have this heavily armored body and tails that were weapons. Um, uh, these these uh, turtles, by the way, are also extinct uh mammals so the this this right here are mammals reptiles and dinosaurs separated by millions of years of evolution uh but upon first observation you'd think they look pretty similar and i i i think it's i think convergent evolution is always an interesting topic and uh, these guys are a great example of it 
Um, yeah, though that's glyptodonts and do, do, doeds. Um, Zach, do you want to pick it up from here? Mammoths, mastodons, completely different animals. Not even in the same family, but we'll go over their phylogeny in a little bit. So mastodons actually predated mammoths by about 0.6 million years. The earliest records of mammoths existing in, the, in our fossil record date back to the Pliocene, the beginning of the Pleistocene, about 2 million years ago, and they went extinct around 10,000 years ago at the beginning of the Holocene. Now, there is some evidence of a small population of mammoths persisting until about 3,750 BC on a small island, I think off of Alaska. Um, but mastodons actually, uh, like I said, they preceded their relatives, the mammoths, by about 0.6 million years ago. And um, let me see where that is. Uh because I, I want to jump in real fast. So you mentioned that last pocket population of mammoths surviving to about three, what, three, you said 3,000 BCE or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. The One of the cool things about time and the examples that people bring up is like Cleopatra lived closer to the iPhone than she did the building of the Great Pyramids, which mammoths – if you include that population, we're still around when the Great Pyramids were being built. <laughs> yes, yeah, so they, they definitely uh, like overlapped with people, 100%. Yeah, well, didn't they use mammoths to pull the giant brick or the giant stones to build no, the pyramids? No, no, sorry, that was aliens. No. Oh. <laughs> no, those, if they did, which likely... Maybe, probably they did not. not. No, um, they did not. They used elephants. There was a modern. movie about it called 10,000 10, BC. 10,000 BC. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you, they got 99% of that completely right, um, except that just, one. Just the detail. mammoths. Okay. <laughs> That's just the, the only mammoths. point they got yeah. right. I mean, wrong. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But yeah, back, back to mammoths versus mastodons. Um, so they, they differed temporally, overlapping a little bit towards the end of mastodons and the beginning of mammoths. But uh, there was also a lot of physical characteristics that differed between the two different, very different species. Um, so the name mastodon actually translates to nipple teeth. And I always, I kind of always knew that, like I had read that before and was like, okay, like, their teeth have little, you know, nipples, haha, nipples on them. And no, I I actually looked up a picture of these while doing research on this. And there's just like straight up spikes on their teeth. It's actually kind of wild. Huh. Yeah. And uh, these teeth were actually very specifically designed to fit the ecosystem that mastodons evolved into which is a more forested ecosystem versus the sort of uh, steppe grasslands that mammoths were adapted to. And this act, yeah, a big, a big portion of both of these animals' ecology actually boils down to their dentition. So mastodons, as I said earlier, translates to nipple teeth, 
were more uh, adapted to forested ecosystems and browsing from uh, trees, pulling leaves off of branches. And that's where their their kind of spiked teeth came in handy is like pulling these uh, leaves off of trees and then like chewing up branches and stuff like that. Whereas mammoths, uh, they had a lot flatter and more grooved teeth than mastodons. And this is uh, an aspect of their ecology where they were more grazers uh, foraging on the grasslands of the Ice Age steppe. And they actually had these really uh, long teeth, I want to call them. So like ma- or mammals in general that graze on grass... This was actually a huge step in mammal evolution because when grasses evolved, they have a compound in them called silica, basically like sand and grit, and it wears down teeth really fast. So mammals that would graze off of grass could only survive for a few years before their teeth were ground down so much that they just couldn't eat anymore and then they would starve. Uh, but what happens with, uh, mammals like horses and also mammoths is that they got really long teeth. So essentially they adapted by getting more tooth, right? And so their teeth would last longer and they would be able to, to survive. And their teeth were really flat and grooved so that they were able to, uh, grind down this, this new phenomenon of grass. So what you're saying is I should stop eating grass. Yes. Yeah, you should stop eating grass because you don't have as much tooth as a mammoth does. Ah, oh, shoot. Uh, oh, I also want to pop in and say, have either of you seen The Lion King? What's that? No, I have never heard of The <laughs> Lion you're so King. Funny. The Lion King. You know the, the elephant graveyard scene? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the idea of elephant graveyards is that as their teeth wear out, just just like mammoths and such, it's not that elephants go to an area to die. They leave the herd and they're like, this is a nice spot where all of my ancestors have died. I think I'll die with them. <laughs> no, it's likely that that area has softer foods. And so as because their teeth are worn down, they can't chew the normal food that they eat. So they go to areas that have soft foods, which then that's where other geriatric elephants go, and then they die there. So it's not that they die there or that they go to die specifically. It's that they go to eat the softer food there. I wonder if that would be the case for mammoths. If like, Are there like big hordes of mammoth fossils beyond like uh, pits where they might have like found softer foods? And... That's actually a great question that I do not have an answer to. Maybe the pits had the softer foods. Yeah, I'm thinking like uh, you know the the mammoth sites in South Dakota and stuff like that. So yeah, there are definitely sites of concentrated you know mammoth fossils that are found, but I I couldn't speak to anything like an elephant graveyard. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. But uh, moving on to what I was talking about earlier with uh, mammoth and mastodon phylogeny, uh, they're actually very distantly related. Surprisingly so, given that. They're so easily confused, just, you know, physically looking at them. They look very similar. Um, So they're both in the order Elephantomorpha, 
which is the same order as African Asian elephants, which, you know, that makes sense, right? They, they look like elephants and elephant evolution is probably another podcast for us. That's probably a series of podcasts for us. But that's where the phylogenetic uh, similarities end. So mammoths, or mastodons, I should, I mean, mastodons are in the family Mammutidae, while uh, mammoths are actually in a much, much more derived family called Elephantidae. And so the mammoths that we know of, like the woolly mammoth and the Columbian mammoth, uh, those were much more closely related to today's African elephants than they were to mastodons. And mastodons don't really have a super closely related extant relative. Uh, I would say their closest extant re- relative is maybe the Asian elephant or Indian elephant. But um, yeah, I'm not, I don't even quote me on that one. What, what does extant mean, Zach? Extant is the uh, opposite, the antonym of extinct. So animals that are extinct no longer exist. Animals that are extant uh, currently exist in today's world. Ah, okay. okay. Good vocab. Yeah, yeah. The more you know. Um, yeah, so mammoths and mammoths went extinct at the end of the Pleistocene, and one of the supporting hypotheses, or one of the supporting evidences of the climate hypotheses, is that the DNA of mammoths and mastodons, I guess, um, the genetic diversity declined in a strong, strongly relationship. A strong R square value with a warming climate, if that makes sense, right? So as the climate's getting warmer, the genetic diversity of mastodons and mammoths is decreasing at a very similar rate, or it's very correlated. Um, so that yeah, that harkens back to um, uh, the climate change hypothesis of why. Um, Pleistocene megafauna went extinct. And I think that is most of what I have right now. So we're going to go back to you. Well, I, I before before you move on, Zach, I wanted to ask you two questions. Which is your favorite? Oh, <laughs> Mammoth, right? Manny, Ray Good. Romano. Manny? Yeah. Yeah, well, have either of you met Archie the Mammoth? Who's Archie no. the Mammoth? Who's- I'm assuming both of you have met Sue the Tyrannosaurus. We have together, actually. Oh, we did. Yeah. Oh, we had a nice date there. Yeah, we did. And we got, uh, what's that beer? What's that beer called? Sue. It's just called Sue. (laughs) I I recently found it in a a bar here, but it's, it's something like that. Huh. Well, um, I'm a little sad about that. It's, a, it's called pseudo Sue, is what it's called. Oh, that yeah, pseudo Sue. That's kind of fun. Anyway, I'm glad you guys got to meet uh, Sue together. Yeah, with, without you. Without me. Well, I met without Archie you. without you guys. So, no, Archie is probably the most famous mammoth fossil 
which you know obviously doesn't get as much recognition as a T-Rex. But uh, go to Nebraska, go to Lincoln, go to the uh, kind of Natural History Museum there, and you'll find Archie in their Hall of Elephants. And Archie was a complete, uh, just like Sue was a complete T-Rex skeleton, Archie was a complete mammoth skeleton found in south southwestern Nebraska and by a farmer. Well, technically not. Okay. Famously found by chickens <laughs> who a farmer noticed that his chickens were pecking at this like white like rock sticking out of the ground on the side of this hill. So the farmer was like, oh, I'll dig that up and I'll, you know, use it on the farm uh, for various things because, you know, might as well. And so he started digging it up and then he's like, oh, this is kind of cool. Um, and then he dug a little more and more came out. And over time, he started to realize that he had something there. So he contacted a, uh, a paleontologist who told him to collect everything and come to find out it was a giant, just huge 14 foot tall mammoth just an enormous specimen that you can find still on display in lincoln nebraska so there's that's archie the the mammoth for you huh Um, you have to go meet him on your next road trip super cool cool zach uh i guess i'll talk about my next one and we'll finish up with sean's but i want to talk about my favorite rodent the giant beaver uh at least those belonging to the genus castoroides um, so like modern beavers, they are indeed rodents, but split taxonomically within the subfamily. So all beavers, including the modern ones that you find in North America and, uh, and Eurasia, all belong to Castoridae, the, the, that family. But the subfamily, it splits into the beavers that you find today and then the giant beavers. So the giant beavers belong to Castoridinae rather than classified in the subfamily Castorinae, which are the the modern beavers. So yes, they are true beavers. They are within the same family, but they are in a different subfamily. So they are just pretty distinct. And their Latin name comes from Castor. Castor just means beaver. It's a direct translation. There's nothing fancy. It's not nipple, tooth, or whatever like that. (laughs) It just means beaver, which is quite rare. That means it's a really old name. So beaver, but oides means like. So it's beaver-like, but still technically uh, beavers. So while they were a lot alike, there are some remarkable differences that I'll definitely highlight. So there are two species that are still recognized within this genus, Castoroides. The main one being Castoroides ohioensis, uh, which was the most abundant and took up most of the range of the giant beavers throughout North America, from Alaska down to Florida. And then the other one was Castor dilophytus, which was found pretty much solely in southeastern U.S. Um, There was a third species that was recognized for some time, but it was like, which was thought to kind of be the predecessor to these. But it's likely that they were just really old specimens of dilophytus. So now there's two, but Castoroides ohioensis is the one that most people talk about when talking about the giant beaver. The first fossils were discovered in Ohio, which is where they get their name from, uh, in peat bogs in 1837. Peat, for those of you who don't know, is a slow decaying layer of plant matter that is basically high acidic, so low decomposition rates, that's perfect for preserving Anything that falls How into it. How dare you say and that so, Pete? He's a good man. <laughs> what do you mean? Oh. <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> Gosh. Uh, I love Peep. Um, Zach probably knows that. We spent some time in Peep Boggs uh, in grad school together. I'm going to link a picture in the show notes of me pulling Spencer <laughs> out of a Peep Bog. If he wouldn't have found me after 20 minutes almost of being stuck in the peat, I would have ended up uh, fossilized. <laughs> you would have ended up so, in the humus layer. That's, that's exactly right. I think it's so, pronounced hummus. Hummus. The, the hummus layer. It goes really well with uh, chips and carrots. And guac. But anyway, um, so while fossils of, of Castroides would be found throughout North America... Not a lot of like full fossils were ever found. I think there was like two specimens where like full, mostly full skeletons were found. For the most part, what's left over are mainly just teeth. A few skulls and a few other leg bones here and there, but not a lot beyond teeth. And that's just because teeth, especially beaver teeth, are very, very hard. So they were able to outlast a lot of the other material that wasn't fossilized. Um... So anyway, uh, fossils from this genus date back to about 2 million years um, to about 10,000 years. Uh, the oldest being um, that Castroides adylophytus, Castroides ohioensis, considered like the newer of the species, but both likely went extinct around 10,000 years ago, which perfectly aligns with the rest of the megafauna. What I want to talk about is I want to highlight that, that the giant part of their name, so these creatures were Estimated to weigh up to about 100 kilograms or 220 pounds um, with beavers, modern beavers weighing max at about half that. So about 100 pounds or so. If you didn't know that beavers were about 100 pounds. Uh, yeah, let me know. You, uh, let me know what you think about that. I think so, it's pretty cool. I did not know that. Yeah, they're big. They're big rodents. I thought I big could like just heavy. boot one with my foot if I needed to, but I'd, <laughs> I'd break my foot if that was the case. Yes, you would. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, don't try to mess with beavers. They will mess with you right back. <laughs> I learned that in ARC. So oh, I can't wait to talk about that <laughs> in just a second. So these, uh, the giant beavers, they were about six to seven foot long, but they lacked that paddle-like tail, or at least it's believed that they lacked the paddle-like tail. But they did have likely webbed hind feet, so they were aquatic, just like modern beavers are. Definitely adapted more for living in water than living on land. Yes, they could go up onto land, but they're likely a little bit more squishy and vulnerable, vulnerable to predators. Let's talk about what beavers do. What are beavers famous for? Vanilla. Oh, I can tell you what beavers are famous for. <laughs> Building dams. Thank you, Zach, for highlighting that. Yeah, um, that's exactly right? where I was going and, with that. And Damn. how do how what's the mechanism behind that? Teeth, right? All rodents have pretty large incisors, incisors that continually grow throughout their, their entire life, that if they don't chew on something hard, their teeth can overgrow and it can actually hurt them. Beavers are no exception. So the enamel on beaver teeth is one of the hardest known like organic substances created, especially within the mammals. And modern beavers have really chisel-like teeth, perfect for like taking off bits of bark and cambium and inner wood layers of trees to fell trees and then to drag those trees out into the into the water to create their dams and their lodges dams are what actually hold back the water lodges are what beavers actually live in so those are likely in the middle or close to the edge of of a beaver pond where they spend spend their nights 
they don't live in the dam. The dam is just a structure to make an area for for them to live in. So it floods an area. So what do you think about the giant beaver? What do you have a guess? Did they build dams? Well, oh, 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 well, first when you said, what do you think dams. about the giant beaver? I, I, I'm now imagining just a giant muskrat. That's more so what they looked like. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I want to say they built dams. Are you going to say no? I'm going to say no. Uh, sure. uh, this is this is why I'm going to say Ark lied to us. Um, <sighs> there is one, maybe two scientists uh, some time ago that were like, but look at these giant logs that were found in conjunction with, uh, you know, like castroidy fossils. But everybody else, every, you know, all these scientists who say these are like, no, they likely did not fell trees. Felling trees in beavers is quite old. It's older than like castroides, so it's not unheard of for these animals to, uh, or it's not. It wouldn't be weird for them not to, but they didn't, or you know what? You you guess what I'm saying. So anyway, uh, they didn't fell trees, and the reason for that is their teeth. They did have really big incisors, but their teeth were less chisel-like than than uh, beavers that fell trees. So not great for like carving away slowly at trees in order to fell them down. Likely, they were aquatic. They lived in pre-existing areas with water. There is evidence based from a, a dig up in the Yukon where they found castroidy fossils in addition to like modern beaver fossils, uh, showing that, yeah, at some points that these two did live in the same areas. And maybe they shared ponds. If a beaver created a pond, maybe castroides lived within that pond. But it's likely that, nope, castroides just found pre-existing bodies of water and lived within those. And they specialized eating aquatic plants for the most part, which they could tear and kind of rip away with those front incisors, but not for felling trees, which is kind of disappointing in a way. So, but it is what it is. Because they didn't fell trees, that was likely the cause of their ultimate demise. Again, not a lot of evidence that humans hunted these these specifically to extinction or even really interacted at all. But likely because as the Pleistocene came to an end, as it got warmer, it got a lot drier. The wetlands that used to be across North America where these lived just started to literally dry up and disappear. And for an animal that solely requires living in the water, eating these aquatic plants, all of a sudden, if you weren't able to create your own pond like modern beavers do, then they couldn't survive. And because they were so much bigger, they just couldn't be sustained on the modern beaver ponds that were still around and being created. They just There was just not enough room for them. And so they got pushed out and couldn't find places to live and just slowly died out. Uh, well, not slowly died out, but quickly died out around 10,000 years ago or so. That, that makes that makes a lot of sense because I, I didn't mention this earlier, but the Pleistocene is also known for a lack of precipitation. It, it may have been colder than a witch's house, but there wasn't a lot of snow or rain occurring during this. Yeah, time. and... Like a, a lot of those wetlands, like as the glaciers melted, they had to melt somewhere, right? So lots of water creating lots of wetlands, perfect for a while. But when those glaciers were gone, yeah, no, not enough rain, 
uh, in combination with not enough water actually melting from these glaciers, just no, no water. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hmm. So they were gone. <clears throat> yeah, didn't last long after that. So, yeah, that's that's what I got about castroides. Um, Very cool. Yeah, cool animal, but not the not the the wood uh, the wood felling or the tree felling creatures that we think of today. Well, dams are really impressive. So <laughs> that's true. <laughs> really love well, your peaches, fell your tree. That's beautiful. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> I'll uh, I'll conclude this with with the Megatherium. Um, the, the this incredible behemoth our boys in the 1800s admired so much and named the club after. Uh, the, the the name Megatherium means great beast, and I, I think that is fitting. These giant ground sloths lived from the early Pliocene through the end of the Pleistocene in South America. First discovered in 1788 in Argentina, the type species is Megatherium americanum and is the best known within the genus. This is likely due to its massive size. Uh, they were 6'11", or 2.1 meters at the shoulder, and were 20 feet, or 6 meters long, head to tail. Uh, they carried a weight of up to 4 tons. And to kind of put their size into perspective, Megatheriums could look elephants in the eye if they raised up on their rear legs. The only other land mammals that rivaled them were ancient elephants in the Paraceratherium, uh, which was a giant rhino that also resembled a giraffe. Um, if you play Ark, you will know what I'm talking about. These are primarily quadrupeds, but were able of bipedal locomotion. Their front feet had large claws, similar to giant anteaters today, where they weren't able to put them completely flat on the ground and instead kind of had to walk on the sides of their front feet. Uh... Like the previous animal I discussed, the glyptodonts, these big boys were herbivores, able to reach high into the trees for the foliage of choice. Uh, you can kind of picture their mouth similar to an anteater's, but maybe not as long. They have prehensile lips and a strong tongue for selecting plants and fruits, including delicious the, the delicious fruit discussed at the beginning of the episode, the avocado. Uh, when preparing for this podcast, I remembered somewhere... I had heard giant ground sloths are, res are responsible for us uh, having avocados today. And so I knew I had to dig into this further. And it turns out plenty of herbivores, herbivorous megafauna consumed avocados during the Pleistocene and prior. These avocados probably didn't look like what you see today at the supermarkets. Uh, maybe a bit less of that tasty pulp we all enjoy but still enough to be attractive to megafauna that could eat them whole. Giant seed and all. And animals that consume them would then travel, uh, you know, they'd eat, move along, and take a fat dumpy, uh, depositing the big avocado seed in the perfect steaming hot pile of fertilizer. And this is a classic example of an evolutionary anachronism. Uh, I think I said that right anachronism yeah a fruit yeah. a fruit adapted to having a relationship with large mammals specifically those that are now extinct so a question remains if the megafauna died out how did the avocado survive uh, 
ancient humans weren't exactly cultivating new varieties of fruit at the end of the Pleistocene, um, or if they were, there's not much evidence of that. There would have been a gap between the end of the Megatheriums and other giants and when South Americans became, began consuming them as a staple food. Uh, so a bit of a mystery, but there are plenty of other examples of these today. Uh, these evolutionary anachronisms, uh, including papaya, cherimoya, which never had that, and honey locust pods. And there might be others, but these are just some of the few I found. So honey locust pods, oh, many of you are probably noticed them around or may not even know what they were but i used to call these like uh <laughs> giant green bean trees uh, uh -huh. i never knew what the actual name of them as a kid was uh, but yeah these were ate by uh ancient mammals that don't exist today and nothing really consumes them today they're just kind of like a, a messy tree um unless you guys know of something that eats them or some use of them I think I saw uh, Spencer I, tree <laughs> one once. Yeah, probably. Um, I usually try to have everything that likely won't kill me. Um, I had a, I cracked one open once and a beetle came out and bit me ah. um, from one of the pods. So for, a, this was when I was a kid. So for a long time, I thought that that's where some beetles lived. They just like lived in these pods. So I never like cracked them open again huh. to like adulthood. Um like oh yeah they're just seed pods and i happened to find one with a beetle inside <laughs> that was very angry that i took him out of his oh, home no. so uh yeah um I, I guess to further add to this fun avocado side trail uh, even more proof that it evolved along these uh, giant ancient mammals is that the pit of an avocado is actually toxic. And maybe I shouldn't be saying this because maybe someone will abuse this bit of information. But uh, humans can't eat the pit and do not have the right enzymes to detoxify our bodies if we do. And some parts of the world will actually use avocado pits mixed with cheese as rat poison. Uh, did, did you guys know this? No, I have to use that I've, one. <laughs> I've never heard of that. I, I, um, I've worked in pest control. Spencer, you want to come over for brunch? <laughs> <laughs> avocado toast. <laughs> I I would rather have avocado avocado pit than avocado. So what? You? I don't. I just, just don't, don't like it. it. Oh. I I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a texture thing. Maybe you taste but that I know you, bit of toxin. Yeah, maybe. May yeah, I don't know. Just genetically superior. Interesting. So, yeah. Well, uh, so megatheriums are herbivorous, right? We just discussed that. But I should point out that uh, this was once debated. And why why would that be? This seems pretty straightforward. They're a sloth. Uh, a couple scientists, uh, Richard Farina and Ernesto Blanco, noticed that the attachment site of the triceps to the elbow the old crannon uh was pretty short uh but well, well, what does that mean about what you eat well other animals that have this adaptation are carnivores and the short attachment site allows the animal to strike with its front limbs like an attack swipe using its claws as a weapon you know uh, maybe like a tiger or, or a bear or something that needs to like you know put something down with a with the power of its hand um 
Some some theorize that it used its massive size and deadly claws to take over kills from other predators, like a scavenger. Uh, some propose that it was capable of turning over glyptodonts that I had previously discussed to get to their soft undersides, which would take quite a bit of strength. Those guys are pretty heavy. Um, the evidence against it being a carnivore or, or even a scavenger is more dominant, though. They, they lack the type of teeth that typical carnivores have. Uh, no, no bones have ever been found in its coprolites, which is fossilized poop. And, though, and, and through carbon isotope analysis, megatheriums have similar isotopes to other herbivores and are significantly different than carnivores and omnivores. So I imagine these claws were useful in self-defense then. Uh, and, and being that large and having that sharp of claws, plus the power of a predator in your front limbs, uh, they were a dangerous animal to uh, come across. And I mean, even today, some of the most dangerous animals on the planet are herbivores. And I think these guys would fall right into that category. Uh, speaking of uh, predation... Uh, there is evidence of human butchery uh, from two separate locations. Well, like, butchery by humans, I should say. Not evidence that these things butchered humans. That would blow <laughs> yeah. everything I just talked about <laughs> out of the water. <laughs> um, one potential site is in Argentina and had megatherium bones and other megafauna alongside human artifacts. Um, and this hunting might have, you know, further pushed them to extinction. It didn't, it didn't help, but... Uh, nothing certain on like that was the cause um one more fun fact uh is that there is a cryptid spencer you might be interested in this and maybe you already know what i'm about to talk about uh cryptids are mythological beasts like bigfoot or nessie and there's a there is a cryptid in south america whose description is oddly similar to that of a megatherium and I'm absolutely going to butcher this name. The the Mapinguari is said to be in around nine feet tall. Wait, do you, do, do you know if I said that right, Spencer? I don't know. Oh, okay. Um, do you know what you, what I'm talking about, though? I I've seen pictures of it. Um, well, obviously pictures of it, but like <laughs> artist You've renderings. Seen it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I take trips down to see it all the time. No, um, I I'm not. I'm not going to have okay. any idea on the name. Okay. So. All right. Well, the, the Mapinguari is, is said to be around nine feet tall. It has deadly claws and backwards feet. You know, sounds a bit familiar. And it has an extra mouth on its stomach. Now, that might not fit a perfect description. Um, allegedly, it is a carnivore, though it has never attacked a man, only cattle. Uh, maybe it was out of self-defense. Uh, who are we to say? Um, its appearance definitely fits that of a megatherium, uh, well, except for that belly mouth part, but hey, maybe, maybe it was a young megatherium attached to its mom, like modern sloths, and whoever came across this thing, uh, just, you know, maybe the baby was screaming at it in self-defense, and... Uh, all it saw was a mouth. I'm imagining the fur of it kind of blending into the fur of the rest of it. And uh, this this guy was just terrified. I mean, if I saw a nine foot tall anything, that <laughs> I'd probably run the other way. Um, so who's who's to say? Maybe they're still making their way through the Amazon jungle. Uh, probably unlikely, but it's pretty cool to think that uh, they could have survived. And 
The last bit of information I, I wanted to talk about is that I know I just mentioned the you know, maybe the fur of the baby was mixed in with the fur of the adults. And we're picturing a, a big old sloth, but and, and, and sloths are covered in fur. Well, there's some that would say maybe they didn't have fur. And now you're probably thinking of a giant naked mole rat. But the, <laughs> the, the idea is these things are so big, like elephants, where they don't need fur to... Uh, keep their body heat um they're they're large enough to produce their own so there are some out there that would you know support the idea that these things weren't heavily furred and if you they live down in south america it's already warm they weren't actually living in along the uh, the edge of the glacier so maybe they didn't maybe they weren't woolly they were they were just mega uh and, and that was that was a bit corny there but uh yeah, that's that's our mascot, the Megatherium. Did you guys learn anything I, there? I did. I didn't know about the the hairless hypothesis. Mm -hmm. uh, weird, but I like the way you describe it. Again, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, elephants are hairless because um, they don't need it. Mm -hmm. So why would the Megatherium need it? Uh, why be extra hot when you could be extra cool? <laughs> Just like me. <laughs> yeah. Just like, just like Definitely not hairless and cool. <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Well, well, great. Yeah. Um, Spencer, do you yeah, want to you want to close for us today? Sure. Well, sure. I I closed last week, but I'll I'll end it. Oh, we we didn't explain, uh, or we haven't explained how how. Last, if you listened last episode, then you'll know that we ended our episode kind of with how, how, and this was a, like the traditional closing remarks, I guess, that the Megatherium would club would make because it's, it's supposed to emulate the sound of a Megatherium. Am I right on that, Sean? Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I have no idea how they deemed that, but the, yeah. <laughs> the boys did believe that was the sound that this beast said, or yeah so yeah. Uh, just an explanation so we'll end it with that but uh we just want to say thanks for listening uh hope you tune in next time and yeah looking forward to whatever we come up with next boys how 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 how